Thank you. Excuse me a minute, I'm going to rehydrate. I want, I want to give a special thanks to Pastor Stephanie, who stepped in at short notice last week. Um, I'm feeling much better. Um, I wish I looked much better. Um, I don't know that that's going to happen unless a miracle takes place. But <clears throat> nevertheless, thank you for everybody who helped out and made sure we got things done. Um, we've started this series, actually we're finishing it today, on the book of Jonah, and um, just looking at the dimensions of God in this story. I love this story. I told you at the beginning of the series, I love this story because it just goes way beyond what seems normal to us. I mean, this is a story that takes human condition and emphasizes it and pushes it out into these great kinds of uh, epic details. And in the midst of this, we see that even though uh, it's, it's more than we're used to, God is at work here. And what he did in the life of Jonah and through Jonah, he wants to do in our lives and through us. And so we've looked at how um, God in his uh, enormous love challenged Jonah to become his servant and his instrument and to go to Nineveh and give a, bad, uh, a bit of bad news. And Jonah said, thank you, no thank you. And then we see that, that God, it wasn't just about God's love, but we see that God demonstrated his power. And so here through a storm that came up and then through a fish that came up and Jonah fighting against that. And Jonah says, you know, I can go one better, Lord, and, and always tries to outdo God. And of course, when he reaches his limit, he just decides, well, I'll just commit suicide and see if you can trump that, Lord. And the Lord says, watch, watch that fish. And so we saw God-sized power at work. And then as Jonah is in the belly of the fish, um, and we talked a little bit uh, about maybe the digestive system of the fish, but how God uh, at work there uh, brought Jonah to an understanding and grace. And Jonah then kind of capitulates or he surrenders to God. And uh, so I wanted to talk this, this Sunday about God's mercy because it would be great if the story ended that Jonah got spit out of the fish. Actually, he wasn't spit out. The details are a little more gruesome. He was vomited out of the fish. It's really nasty. And he proceeds to go and do what God asked him to do. And the people of Nineveh hear the bad news that God is going to judge them and they repent. And the people turn from their ways, even the king and even the animals. We read and the Lord relents and says, okay, I'm not going to destroy you. And that, that would be a great place. If I were the editor of the story, I'd go, just finish it there. Just, just stop there. That, that's, that's the great ending to the story. And we can play a beautiful song at the end and all stand and sing. And, you know, Jonah came back to God. Nineveh came back to God. And God is great and God is gracious. But then they tack on Jonah chapter 4. And it's so incredibly disappointing. And so 
And it's not very long. It's only 11 verses. So here we're going to look at it. In Jonah chapter 4, um, <laughs> you've got to set up the first verse. Because at the end of Jonah chapter 3, God relents and says, I'm not going to destroy you. You have turned your hearts to me. And Nineveh is not going to be burned up and eaten up. And this is how chapter 4 starts. And we get to see that Jonah's heart is a human heart. And he reverts to some of his previous ways. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away from Tar- to Tarshish. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I would rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there, and soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. So God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly, and it died quickly. But Nineveh was more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? This is an incredible part of the story. And... uh, Uh, like I said, I wish we had just ended at the end of chapter 3 and it would have been a nice happy ending. But we get into this where Jonah, he goes back. He reverts to this thing where um, he really does not like the way God works and he really wishes that God would change that up and would uh, destroy the people. And he's angry, angry, angry all over the place. In fact, the repetition in the, in the passage, the repetition in the chapter, is God asking Jonah, is it, is it reasonable? Is it right that you should be angry about this? He asks that question of him over and over again, and in each time you get this really, you know, this strident response, yes, and, it, and I'm so angry, I'm angry enough to die. And, you know, he goes back to this thing where he is so willing to sacrifice his own life in order to not have to surrender to God. And we look at that and we go, how crazy is Jonah? And yet, we know 
that there are people all the time that are willing to sacrifice their lives, maybe not physically die, but they're willing to do things that bring incremental death. They're willing to participate in things that they know are stupid, that they know are costly, that they know are painful. And I'd rather do that than actually do what God asks of me, because what God asks of me looks even more unpleasant. And somehow we get things all turned around and we are just like Jonah. Here's what makes things worse. It's one thing to look at the world around us and go, you know, they've gotten things all wrong and they're doing things that cost them so much and it's killing them and they should just obey God. But there are some of us who have been following God And then when God shows his character of mercy, we go, I don't like that. That's not the God I want. And we try to custom order God to fit our preferences. And when God doesn't change to fit us, we get angry. So, we see here is Jonah. So very quickly, he is, he's, he's relapsing. He's going back from being rescued by this fish in this crazy, disgusting way. And then he goes into the city and he obeys for a moment. And then as soon as things start to happen and work in ways that God really intends them to work, Jonah goes, okay, I've had enough of this. I'm done. And he is so quick to forget that the God who called him to go to Nineveh is the God who will do these things. The God who caused the storm, who brought the fish, is the God who's going to provide the same kind of rescue to the people of Nineveh. How often is it that we love the fact that God rescued us, but we're not that thrilled about the fact that God wants to rescue others? We love the fact that God blessed America, but we're not that thrilled about the fact that God wants to bless Syria or Mexico, or we could go on and on. We love the fact that my family is incredibly blessed, but we're not that happy when the family across the street, who are terrible people, have things go their way. And so we recognize that as we experience blessing, there's this temptation To say the blessing of God gives me some kind of an entitlement that is excluded from other people that I don't think are entitled to that. Or another way of saying this is I think there's a little bit of danger in elevation. You know, as as the Lord lifted, literally lifted Jonah, if we go back into chapter 3, Jonah, when he has this prayer, he says, I was in the depths, or sorry, chapter 2, I was in the depths of the deep, of darkness, He doesn't talk about the fish. He says, I was in the depths of the sea. And the Lord rescued me and lifted me. And so there's this elevation factor where he he comes out. And Jonah, at that point, would just like to make it back to sea level, right? But he goes way beyond that. Jonah, in, in, in a figurative sense, he is elevated to the point not just of being a rebel against God. He is rescued and he is elevated to the point where he becomes an instrument of God. He becomes a preacher. He becomes a prophet. He speaks for God. And guess what? People respond. And you would go, wow, Jonah, you have changed the history of Nineveh. 
And yet there's this danger because he's in this position where he has said these words, he has obeyed God, and then when God begins to work, he goes, but I do not like this. And we see this kind of type that recurs in Scripture. So we see this again in the New Testament when Jesus is speaking and he tells this story about a lost son who wanders away and and he ends up in kind of like Nineveh. He ends up in kind of like the belly of a fish, except he ends up in a pigsty. And he cries out and, and makes his way home and he is rescued and he is welcomed by his father. And then we see this Jonah type of a person in the older brother who goes, I'm not going to celebrate this. I'm not happy about this. And we need to be careful that as we are elevated by obedience... And taken out of the mess of the world and freed from the chains of the world, that we don't fall into the trap of believing that God should judge harshly people who haven't experienced that. You see, this is what happens when we no longer really love the lost. When we no longer really love the lost, then we start to pray these prayers that just say, you know, Lord, just destroy these people. Make them pay. Make them pay. And we're not alone in that. You can go to the Psalms, and you can read the psalmist over and over again. When the psalmist is mistreated, and he's trying to obey the Lord, and he's trying to glorify God, and there's these people around him, and they're terrible people, and they try to do terrible things, and the psalmist says, God, you know, smite them, hurt them, do things to them, stop them, confuse them. Make them pay. And we have a name for those psalms. We call them the imprecatory psalms because we're asking God to do bad things to people. And they're sometimes hard to read. Sometimes they're easy to read because we go, yeah, Lord, do that. Do that to the Democrats. Do that to the immigrants. Do that to corporations. Or we look around at anybody that we are angry with and we go, Lord, now would be a good time for you to be a just and vengeful God because that would feel really good to me, we think. Here's here's a part of the lie that's hidden in that. Looking for a harsh God never soothes our anger. It never soothes our anger. So let's, let's take this a little bit forward. And what I want to do next is I want to look at how God conducts himself in this chapter and how Jonah conducts himself. And we're going to do a little bit of a comparison here at the two. So we're going to put them side by side, God and Jonah. And so here is God, and he now, here's the people of Nineveh who cry out, and he responds to them with mercy. And and there are all kinds of definitions of mercy. My favorite is just, mercy means we don't get what we deserve, we get far better. That's that's the simple one I like. We can get into really complex ones of unmerited favor and things like that. But it just means I deserve something, but I got way better. It means I went to Walmart and I was going to buy the cheapest version and they said, oh, for the same price, we'll give you the top of the line. It means I should have gotten in trouble and instead I walked away. That's mercy. 
And God extends mercy. He goes, oh, these people are turning to me and they are truly repentant and they have listened to my words, which why in the world would he ask Jonah to go unless he had the possibility in his mind that these people might repent. And so he relents. And then when he relents, he restores. You see, the act of coming under the mercy of God is the first step on the path to restoration. Not having to pay the full weight of the penalty is the first step of freedom. And so God restores. And then in this whole thing, the Lord is faithful. And and I love this because in the story, the Lord is faithful. He's not only faithful to the people of Nineveh. Here's the crazy part. He's faithful to Jonah. Jonah's being a jerk. And Jonah stomps out of the city, out to the east side, and he builds himself some kind of a shelter, which must not have been a very good shelter because a plant made a better shelter than what he built. And he stomps out to the east side of the city and he plops down there and he sulks and he moans and he groans and he moans and he groans to the Lord. That's what the scripture tells us. He's angry, so he talks to God. And let me tell you, in our anger, the Lord can handle the conversation. But the Lord doesn't respond with a statement. He doesn't say, you know, Jonah, I know you're really angry. I know you're really upset about this, but you shouldn't be. This is what you should do instead. The Lord just asks him these questions. And there's this, there's this faithfulness to God where he returns to Jonah again and again. He goes, Jonah, should you really be angry about this? Should you really be angry about this? Come on, Jonah, should you really be angry about this? And it's not just that the Lord is persistent. It's that the Lord is faithful because he loves Jonah as much as he loves the Ninevites. And so we see his faithfulness, and then we see that his faithfulness is expansive. He includes the Ninevites. He includes Jonah in his mercy. And in fact, in this bizarre thing, he includes the animals. Did you miss that? Because in the previous chapter, when the people of Nineveh repent, and they put on the sackcloth and ashes, and they they even... They even extend their acts of contrition to their animals. It's kind of weird. It would be kind of like me going home and going, I did something really bad this week, and so I'm going to take the collar off my dog, and I'm going to smear her with mud, and she and I will sit out in the front yard, and I'll smear myself with mud, and everybody can see everyone in my household, including my dog, is sorry for what I did. It seems crazy, doesn't it? But in the next chapter, we see this reference that God makes. I, I have covered the sin to the extent that not just the people are freed, but the animals are not destroyed. This, this God whose mercy is so great, he would care about their livestock and their pets. You contrast it with, with, with Jonah, and Jonah is angry. I mean, he is so mad. He, he does this thing. He stomps out of the city. He plops down, and he has this really defiant conversation with God. And, and Jonah is destructive in this. I mean, what he really wants at his heart of hearts, what he really wants, he goes out there, he sits down, and and this is what it says. He sits down and he watches the city to see what would happen. Because I think in Jonah's mind, he's going, I'm just just waiting 
for those Ninevites to screw up. And then let the fireworks begin. Just, just let it happen. I'm going to sit here and go, oh, yay, here comes, it's destroyed. And he, he is bent for destruction to feed him for the wrongdoing of the people. This is, the, this is the crazy thing that we have to struggle with in our world between justice and mercy. Because justice says that punishment is due. Somebody should pay for this. And it seems right, and we serve a just God, and he will make things right. But in the same breath, we serve a merciful God, and people who cry out to him are forgiven, and it doesn't seem appropriate. It doesn't seem right. It seems crazy. And so a just God is a merciful God, and sometimes you just can't cram the two of those things together. Some of us have been wronged, and we want people to pay. And there just is no payment that will take care of the suffering. Many of you know the story of my family and probably the greatest wrong that's ever been done to my family as far back as I can remember and probably on to my grandchildren. I hope and pray it's the greatest wrong we ever endure is that my grandparents were murdered. And then not only were my grandparents murdered, but the man that killed them committed suicide. And so there was no court case. There was no jail sentence. There was no... You know, how, how is he going to be made to pay for the wrong that he did, how he robbed us of our loved ones? There wasn't. He was just gone. And we were left with all the wreckage that we had to pick up and rebuild. And so there was this, there was this thing in my heart and in my head that I lived with for about 10 years. How in the world can I get over this? Because I never got to see the guy and shake my finger at him and say, how dare you do that to us? I never got that. Until I got to a point where I realized that I never needed that. Because even if I'd had that, it wouldn't have helped. It wouldn't have freed me. In fact, if I'd had the opportunity to do that and to just let him see all my anger, it may have made my anger multiply. It may have made it worse. And so instead, I was even robbed of any sense of justice. Our family was robbed of any sense of justice because a great wrong was done and we had very little recourse except a God who calls us to forgive. And I guess what I'm saying is that I am so thankful that God showed me that that was really the only option. So Jonah's bent on destruction but God says, let's work toward restoration. And then Jonah is incredibly inconsistent, whereas God is just faithful. God is, he, he's caring for Jonah. He persists with Jonah. He cares for Nineveh. He even cares for the animals. And Jonah, he is, he's there. He preaches to the Ninevites, repent. And as soon as they repent, he, his heart turns and changes and he's capricious. He's, he's incredibly inconsistent. Which Jonah is going to show up today? Angry Jonah or righteous Jonah? 
This is a part of us finding that place of mercy in our own lives, is having the experience that brings us to a place where we can be entirely consistent in love. Because we don't have to make people pay. Years ago, as I was pastoring in Illinois, I had a a man come to me in our church, and he had a family member that was in financial distress. And and he came to me and he said, I want to help this person. I love them. And their finances are a mess, and they've been hit with some really heavy bills, and they don't know what they're going to do, and they're getting very discouraged and despondent. I want to help them out. But I don't want them to know I did it because I don't want them to keep coming back to me and just say, keep paying my bills. And so we sat down and we kind of talked about this and how could we do this and how could we intervene. And uh, um, he finally, he said to me, you know, I would do this for them every month because I love them. And that's what scares me. And it showed me mercy. I mean, this guy, he could have done it. He had the money. He could have done it every month. But he said, you know, it scares me. I love them so much. I do it over and over and over again. And then I realized I just saw a picture of God who would say, you know, Hink, you can mess up every week and I'll be there. You can do things that anger me and I will not let you go. God is incredibly consistent in his mercy. That doesn't mean that we just rely on that and say, well, here we go, Lord, I hope that mercy's good. But instead that we recognize that God and his character never fail us. And then finally, there's this thing that happens with Jonah that, again, just makes you go, Jonah, have you lost your mind? Because this plant grows, and it grows rather quickly, and it shades him, and he likes that, and, and, and his anger abates a little bit. I mean, he's not quite as angry because I'm sitting here in the shade, and it's c- kind of comfortable. And he's happy about a plant, and he misses completely the whole dimension of what, going, what is going on. And he's happy about the plant. And so <laughs> here's the mercy of God that is very strange for us to understand. But the mercy of God is providing a plant that gives him shade. And then on the heels of that, in the very same breath, and then the Lord sent a worm. And so I just want to tell you, if your life right now is defined by, and the Lord sent a worm, <laughs> it's merciful. <laughs> Bear with me. So this worm eats the plant and the plant dies. I mean, it just destroys the plant. And Jonah sees this and his anger goes from 10 to 11. (laughs) And God goes, Jonah, do you have any right to be angry about this? You know, and and you can almost see this smile on God's face going, yeah, Jonah, you stomped out of the city and you were so mad. And then you sat down here waiting to see if it would be destroyed and you got even more mad. And then you got this little ridiculous plant that died and your, your anger goes over the top and so much over the top you go I'm so mad I could die and he goes hey Jonah really should you be this angry about this and he goes yes And Jonah goes from dealing with things of eternal consequence of the people of Nineveh and he escalates to trivial things of a plant that lives and dies in a day And the trivialities in Jonah's life become the most important things. I just want to add a little bit of word of caution here. 
I, I want to tell you, I think one characteristic of the people of God is that we are not people of drama. And I may be, I may be needling at things that I shouldn't hear, but I hate it. I hate it when I do this. I hate it when you do this. We take one little thing and we just blow it way out of proportion and we make it huge. And then we have this sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to my anger. I'm entitled to my indignation because that sounds better than anger. And, and I, I want to hold on to this as though it's something that is huge in my life. And we let something small dominate. And so, and, and I'm just going to tell you, I think we see this the most, it's easiest to see it here. But be, be gracious and merciful to them. But you know, teenagers, something happened. Somebody said something. The way they looked at me, you know, what they said about the way I'm dressed, you know, or my hair today. And it just destroys my day. And mom and dad, you know what I'm talking about. We're not very gracious. They came home. They said my hair looked horrible. And, ah, you know, and things just kind of go spinning out of control. And then mom and dad are sitting there going, really, in the scope of things, this is nothing. But in the moment, for that person, it is everything. And we do it too, adults, parents, grandparents, where we see something and we dwell on it and we make it so important, we miss the great things that God is doing. So when we put these things side by side, we don't want to stand where Jonah stands. We don't want to sit under that plant. We want to join the Lord. We want to have the heart of God. And God we see as a God who is a God of mercy, restoring faithfully, expansively. I'm just going to go on. See, here's what mercy does. It, it, it it's, runs counter to conventional wisdom. This is what mercy does. Mercy allows for the possibility of restoration. It, it leaves that possibility open. Mercy leaves the door open for people who deserved to, be, to have to pay for that. Let me tell you, a trivial story from my life. When I was in high school, I, uh, I, wasn't, the, I wasn't the nicest guy. And I, I shared, the, I think, Friday night with some of you that um, they had a church camp and they, they contacted my parents and asked them if they would not bring me. Can you believe that? Yes. <laughs> okay. Maybe I haven't transformed as much as God needs to, to transform yet. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, I, I was just kind of rebellious, and um, there was this huge church event going on with youth, with teens. And um, I wanted to go, and uh, it was really important to the people of our church, and so they built it up. It's going to be a really important thing. And, and most of the kids that were involved, I wasn't really involved. I just wanted to attend. And the kids that were involved, they all had these matching outfits. And um, I thought, I'm just going to go and attend. And um, I had these wonderful matching outfits. It was a, some of you of Free Methodist background remember, it was a, it was a quiz meet. 
And it was a huge, it was quiz nationals. And I walked in to watch my friends who were quizzing. I wasn't on the quiz team. I walked in and I had, uh, we called them jams. I had these, these shorts that were this, this really wild, bright Hawaiian print and a cut-off t-shirt. It was the 80s, folks. Forgive me. And I was barefoot. And I went in and I sat in church, dressed like that, and watched my friends quizzing. And I, I had no idea this went on until later in my life. Thank God. God is merciful. But there were, there were a couple of adults that saw me and just kind of lost it. And they went out and they were talking about how to confront me and throw, you know, get him out of here. He's dressed inappropriately, which was partially true. And uh, so they were out in the foyer talking about who should go and tell me to get up and walk out and go home and get changed and come back when I look decent. And a lady uh, that I still see from time to time, who is well up in years now, was walking by. And she heard them. And she didn't know who they were talking about at first. And she stopped and she goes, what, what are you talking about? And they said, well, somebody's dressed inappropriately in there. We're going we're gonna to confront him. And I think as soon as she, they said that, she knew who they were talking about. And she told them, she said, leave him alone. This was a story I heard later. He said, leave him alone. He's in church where he belongs. I didn't hear that story for about 10 years. After I did hear that story, I went to her and I said, uh, Marilyn, I, I heard about something you did for me years ago. And, and she goes, really? I, I did that? She didn't remember it, which is also the mercy of God. But it was entirely consistent with who she is. And I said, I am so glad that you love me more than my faults and my foolish thinking. And that was something very, very trivial. But in my heart, as a high schooler, if they had come and said, you need to leave the church and go home and change, I would have said, don't worry, I won't be back. I would have done it. And there would have been a greater rift. But for some reason, God impressed on her, call them to mercy. I'm so thankful they did. So mercy opens the door to restoration. Mercy allows space for faults to be dealt with, not just to be cast out. And then here's the last thing. We have to remember the part of mercy is removing the penalty. I want to close with one last story. It's, it's one that pleases me to no end. As a young pastor, um, there, had, there was a, a young lady who attended the youth group in our church. And then she left our church to attend another church in town and became very active in their youth group. In fact, she was you know, one of the leaders of their youth group, which was a wonderful thing. And, um, and Amy was, a, and still is, a very talented, gifted person. And, um, and then she finished high school, and she fell in love with a guy who had uh, gone through a divorce, already had two kids. And the people of this other church were very unhappy with her for dating him. And then... And, and I think some of them even confronted her and said, you shouldn't be dating him. He's divorced. He's got kids already. And you're, you know, you're such a capable gal. You're, you, you should have better than this. Then to make matters worse, they got engaged. And when they got engaged, 
she moved in with him. And that was, that was just it for that church. They were done, and they sat down with her. A group of them sat down with her and confronted her and him, and they said, you cannot get married in our church until you stand up on a Sunday morning and confess your sin in front of everyone here. I mean, it was a really heavy-handed thing. And for some reason, I got a phone call, and, and uh, Clint and Amy said, can we come talk to you? And I said, Sure. And they came by, and we sat down in my study. I said, what's going on? They said, we got engaged. I said, oh, really? And I knew that, that they had been dating. And then they went on to say, well, we've been living together, too. We want to get married. But this is what our other church is requiring of us. Clint, at the time, was really not where he needed to be spiritually. And he just said, we'll go down and get married at the Justice of the Peace. Timothy will take care of it. Let's, uh... Stephen, would you just make sure that someone's pulling the fire alarm and not an actual fire? That's false alarm. We're good. So here's the fun thing. This is going to go out over our internet feed and people are going to go, Hey, let's listen to Pastor Hank's message. I'm so mad I could die. <laughs> Don't get it shut off. Where was I? Yeah, where was I at in the story? So anyway, Clint and Amy came to me and said, you know, we want to get married. And uh, so I walked with them for several weeks and uh, counseled with them. There were two kids involved. I didn't want to hurt the kids. And I asked God for wisdom. I asked leaders in our church for some guidance on it, to pray with us, and we did. And Clint was not having it with Christians at this point. Christians are just horrible people. But we did it. They got married. Went out of state to get married. I traveled with them. Kayleen and I went to a beautiful wedding. They came back and received a letter from a church that said, um, you're out of fellowship with us. And Clint said, that's fine. I'm never coming back there anyway. And that would be the end of the story, Right? But it's not. And it was several years later, by chance, I was driving back through that town in western Kansas, and we 
we're visiting some friends there, and we pulled in to get a bite to eat at lunch, and we're sitting down at a little restaurant, and Clint had seen us come through, and he turned around, he turned his pickup around, and he came into the restaurant, he walks in, and I, I got up, and I said, hey, Clint, how are you doing? And he, he goes, can I, can I sit down with you guys? And we said, sure, you know, and he sat down, we said, have you had lunch? Yeah. And then he proceeded to tell me what God had done. And he said, you know, I've, I've had a change of heart. I love that. And he, he talked about how the Lord brought them together, he believed. And sure, we made mistakes along the way. And, and, he, and, and Clint is, I mean, he is a, an athletic, strong, manly guy. And he reached over and he grabbed my hand and I, I thought he was going to break it. But he grabbed my hand and he said, you showed us mercy. And I, I admitted to him, I said, you know, Clint, at the time, I was just trying to think, Lord, how do I make a messy situation better? And I didn't really know what I was doing. I was just, I was just trying to follow God on the fly. And to this day, he still will email me occasionally and contact me and say, here's what's going on in our life. And this guy is one of the most outspoken evangelists I've ever met. He tells men all around him what God has done to change his life. Because mercy opens the door to the possibility of restoration. Now, I don't know how that fits in your circumstances today. I don't know who it is that, that you're having to deal with as a family member, a person at work, a, a neighbor. I don't know who has wronged you. I don't know who you're sitting there watching and waiting for God to destroy. But let me remind you that mercy nudges the door open for restoration. And let God guide you. Just follow him on the fly. And it may not happen this week. For Clinton Amy, it took several years. But I am so thankful that he is walking passionately with God. And so my friends, let's, uh, let's not imitate Jonah. Let's imitate Christ in this.